0: There's so many kind of fictional narratives around Frida Kahlo, call it Mania. We see her face everywhere. The more I researched her, the more I realized, actually, there's another story here. And I think there's something even more important than this going on in her works of art. And it actually goes right back to the fact that she originally wanted to be a doctor. It was just on her way back from the school that she was involved in this horrific crash. Uh, between a bus and a tram, which left her in bed for a year. And this is the point at which, what was she going to do? She couldn't go to medical school anymore, and she knew, right, my hopes of being a doctor are over now. And she used a mirror, which her parents bought for her, to start painting portraits of herself. In painting herself, you can see she's using art as a form of therapy. We need space to create good things. And it, and I don't. I do see a lot of artists creating works just for Instagram to fit in the square. Which, you know, there's one thing to have instant success on social media, but I think we should all be trying to create things that will last beyond us.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to the Dot Podcast, where I, fash Garmenicus, ask questions to best-selling non-fiction authors about their books and ideas. The guest of this episode is Ruth Millington, the author of a brilliant book called Muse, which uncovers the hidden figures behind art history's masterpieces. When we hear the word Muse, we often think of a passive Powerless model, a mere tool in the hands of a genius artist Ruth Millington tells us that this idea is largely a myth Muses are not those silent tools in the possession of genius artists They have brought emotional support, intellectual energy, career-changing creativity, and practical help to artists In this interview, Ruth will tell us stories behind the muses who inspired artists such as Frida Kahlo, Pablo Picasso, Lucien Freud, Tilda Swinton, and many, many others. I hope you will enjoy listening to my interview with Ruth Millington, and let's begin. Dear Ruth, thank you so much for coming to my podcast. I'm so excited about this interview and your book. Um, Finally, we've made it. Uh, For our listeners who do not know, we tried to arrange this interview for uh, since early November, and so many things happened. And finally, we are here. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for coming.
0: Oh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, as you said, it's taken a few uh, goes to try and get us both together because of travel and snow chaos and illness and all sorts. <laughs> but yeah, nice to be with you and thanks for your interest in the book, Muse.
1: It's such a wonderful book. It's uh, Unfortunately, our li- uh, listeners cannot see, but I would recommend everyone to get a hard copy of your book. It's such a wonderful edition with beautiful illustrations. It's just Just holding it in my hands is such a pleasure and wonderful book and um it was kind of I felt as if I found gold in uh, my local waterstones when I stumbled upon your book, you know, uh, a book about muses and explaining the relationship between artists and muses. So I'm so excited to record this podcast and ask you all the questions that my readers and listeners sent in when I shared this book. Um, Perhaps, should we begin by, maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself so our listeners who are not yet familiar with you would uh, find out about you.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh I always find it funny when people say, you know, what do you do? is always the question at a gallery opening. And it's like, well, I do a hundred different things. Um, I actually originally wanted to be an artist. And I went after school to art college and studied uh, on the foundation course, specializing in painting. And I mean, you can see that interest in the book. I primarily talk about paintings. Um, But after a year there, all my lecturers were telling me, listen, you're writing too much here. (laughs) Can you stop writing so much and get to the studio and do some painting? And then I realised, ah, what I'm interested in is actually the history of art and writing about works, past and present. So after the foundation course, I went to do a liberal arts degree. So I did English, classics and art history at university. And then I specialised in a master's in art history. And from there, went to work in museums and galleries, including a very fancy art dealership in Mayfair, where I was responsible for selling million pound paintings to clients. And all of, I've, all of this has informed in the book, because that's where I started to realise there's so many stories in the history of art, which haven't been told in artists' names that people don't know. So for every kind of Monet Impressionists there's you know 10 more minor Impressionists who we haven't heard of so yeah that kind of that's been my journey and now I work at Sotheby's Institute of Art where I manage the career service giving advice to our students on master's courses about careers in the art world helping them get jobs and internships and then of course I'm doing my research and my writing on Muse and other books as well <laughs> but this is the one we're talking
1: about today it's clearly like your career and what you do is cannot be confined in to one box you know it's obviously it's related all to art but it's so spread out into different parts of the art world um sounds really interesting and I um obviously we are going to talk about muses and I, I cannot ask about your own news what was <laughs> well, first of all what what or who was your muse? to be interested in art so much? You know, first of all, to want to become an artist yourself and then uh, to start writing. What, who was your muse or what was your muse?
0: i say two things. First of all, the landscape. And people always ask, you know, does a muse have to be a person? And I say, absolutely not. Um, if you think about the Impressionists and the, la- the great landscapes which they painted, we all need some form of inspiration. For me, I've always loved painting the landscape and I've lived in lots of different places. I actually grew up in Bermuda and Mm -hmm. love that kind of tropical landscape, um, more so than the the British one. And I'm always interested in different climates and locations and how who we are is kind of wrapped up in place as well. Mm -hmm. So I'd say landscape, but also beyond that, two teachers of art. And I think credit to them really because they kind of brought out I mean I was already interested in art but through their lessons I felt this kind of freedom to express who I was and from the start really we were exploring art history as part of the practical art lessons and when I was 11 a great art teacher we did a project with him on Picasso And I just spent hours and hours (laughs) copying his pictures and then making my own portraits of my face in a cubist manner. And uh, he said to me then, oh, you know, you're actually really good at drawing. And, yeah, just spent more and more time in the art department, really. And, you know, I faced a lot of people saying, don't do art. It's not, you know, it's not a proper subject. It's not a serious subject. But I couldn't help it. I was hooked. It's like a drug to me. I have to be, I have to do something creative every day to feel Good.
1: Sounds interesting. What uh, I didn't know, obviously, that you grew up in uh, Bermuda, you said. It's interesting how the environment and the nature influences us in terms of uh, where do we feel comfortable, what inspires us. You divide your book into several categories of muses that an artist can have. As you said, it doesn't have to be a person or it can be anything, you know, that inspires you. And the categories that you explore just couple of them to let our listeners know is the first one is the artist as a muse and in that category we find Dora Maar also the self as a muse uh, in this case is Artemisia Gentileschi my question i was wondering if you could say, uh, tell us a little bit how did you decide to divide your book why is it uh, divided into the types of muses how did you decide what, what to include, what to exclude. Could you tell a little bit about this?
0: Joan Didion said it really well. Writing fiction is like making a watercolour painting and you see where the marks take you and you're free to express yourself. But writing non-fiction is like making a sculpture and you chip away and you chip away and you sculpt and you carve and you kind of hone your art there. So Muse was kind of like this, the process of Deciding which muses went in and which sections to include, and at the start I had a long list of sixty muses, maybe more even. There's still that working document on my laptop uh, in case there's ever a muse too. But yeah, there was you know there were sixty who I could have written their stories really. um With some of them, I started the research and found actually I. I just, I wouldn't be able to tell their story appropriately. You know, I can't, I I just don't have the access. So for example, the Taj Mahal, I was interested in the story about the woman buried there. It's a tomb for her and her story. But I just, I couldn't get enough information to tell that really truthfully. Whereas with the ones that went in, there were enough kind of, there was original material, which I could look at. There were diaries or journals. So that kind of helped influence who went in. But also I wanted to make sure that there were a real variety of muses of different genders and races from different cultures, different periods of art history, because this concept of the muse has always been there in art history. So it really needed to span that kind of breadth of what we find in museums and galleries today. And then I began to play around with these different sections and some was really obvious, you know, we absolutely have to have artists as muses because so many artists have worked as mutual muses with others. And then this idea of the family albums came to me because I thought, yeah, people are always portraying those closest to them and, you know, could be a friend, but I found particularly family members have kind of stood in as muses, sometimes unwillingly. <laughs> so you know that famous painting of Whistler's mother. Uh, <laughs> she she didn't want to be a muse, but basically the, the first model didn't show up for the portrait, so she sat in instead. And, and you can see she looks quite glum about it in the portrait. So that's yeah, that's the evolution of the book. And I also worked closely with the editor at the Penguin on deciding. Who, who came in and who we left out for perhaps another
1: book. I hope there will be like kind of a second part a sequel to this book. <laughs> you said that there are uh, muses across cultures, that the concept of music uh, existed across cultures. Are they... Uh, Different across cultures is um, the is an Indian artist uh, his or her muse different from uh, Western artist artist muse or the concept of being muse. And the second thing is, of course, uh, my question is about this essential core of your book that we um, treat muses as those passive. Uh, Beings, you know, as a passive phenomenon, while they are very active, they play very often a very active role. Could you please explore those two um, uh, areas that um, my readers asked a lot? Is that do muses um, differ across cultures? Um, the mm-hmm. idea of muse and why do we treat it as a passive rather than active phenomena?
0: <clears throat> the muse is it is by nature a Western concept. So the muses we have to go back to ancient Greece. And I talk actually in the introduction about the Disney movie Hercules because I think it's a really good example of what the muses were originally, because you see in that film that they're, they're all wearing these sexy togas and dancing about, dancing about and singing the story of Hercules and telling telling the story and singing about it, and it's kind of true because at their origin there were nine divine goddesses; they were sisters. And they were these goddesses of the arts, of knowledge, and musicians, poets, artists. They had to invoke the muse. So the muses were these revered divine goddesses who they had this kind of power to bestow creativity and inspiration on artists and other creators. I think from there, the concept of the muse has really evolved and changed into what now we have as this kind of passive stereotype of the muse. Just sticking within Western art history for now, you see kind of during the Renaissance, that's where we get a lot of paintings of the muses dancing around fields and forests with their dresses falling off them. And you can see then there's that shift and they become kind of just beacons of beauty. And I think there's another shift here where it's kind of male artists, male painters saying, hmm, the kind of the power and the inspirations within me alone and i kind of i own the muse so the there's a shift in the power dynamic there so they no longer need the muse it's just kind of become a status symbol to be able to paint a muse then we see in kind of 13th century onwards this is when i think this is the biggest shift then the muse becomes a real life person for artists to work with and you'll see particularly in kind of pre-raphaelite painting. so now by the 19th century artists are painting wives sisters partners romantic partners other artists and the muse has gone from being this kind of allegorical figure to being a real life person so they have an intimate relationship with them in some way and the pre-raphaelites really played on this notion of the muse that every artist needs a muse. And from there, then we go into modern art. And Picasso picks up this mantle. And he, you know, lots of his paintings have got the word muse in the title. And he he actually said, you know, my art is shaped by my love affairs. And he was definitely toying with this notion of having a female muse. And he's very responsible, I think, for shaping this idea that great male artist has pretty younger female muse. And from there, it's picked up by art critics and art history's narratives. Mm. And then, you know, beyond that, kind of popular culture, books, films, we see this notion of, you know, the fact that this muse kind of belongs to an older male, great artist, and they're lucky to be inside his studio. We We see this idea really has become crystallised. Mm. In terms of other cultures, there's no concept quite like that kind of concept in, back in ancient Greece of the divine goddesses. But obviously there are goddesses of the arts in other cultures. None of them, I would say, are, you know, straightforward equivalent of the muse. But, you know, the arts, everybody takes inspiration from other cultures. And you can see that's kind of been passed between and across borders now, particularly with contemporary artists. A lot of them do actually... I think, play with notions of the muse as being Western and shaping it from their lens and their point of view. So I write a lot about um, Chinese artist Pixie Lau, a photographer, and she actually works with her boyfriend Moro, who's Japanese, and the two of them are not only playing with ideas that, oh, the muse should be female, because in their case, the muse is Moro, who's male, but also notions that, the muse has to be a Western person and they, they wrap, it's, their photos are fantastic, but they wrap Morrow up as a sushi, sushi roll mm. <laughs> with bedding on a bed in their apartment to kind of poke fun at notions of the muse and the fact that it is always a, a young Western woman, which is not the case. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It exists globally now and in lots of different ways.
1: It's interesting that how the concept of the muse changed over the centuries, as you mentioned. You know, and uh, when you uh, described Renaissance muse, I had a feeling as if in during the Renaissance time as if the concept of muse has been simplified a little bit more like mm-hmm. as you described that uh, you, that they started picturing them as those dancing tameable uh, creatures phenomenon i from my perspective i feel as if it is a simplified version uh, of the concept of the muse it um, muse yeah, is more complex exactly. and we imagine renaissance period uh, that you know it's kind of the opposite way that when everything got more Interesting, more complicated. When uh, from what you describe, it kind of got more simple.
0: Yeah, they. I think they lost kind of their individual characteristics. So, in paintings of the muses, you see they all just look quite um, similar. You know, nine very attractive women with long flowing dresses, with hair. You know, the hair flowing about in the wind, <laughs> dancing in <laughs> the springtime. As opposed to, if you go back to ancient art, you could find. You know, even on temples sculptures and friezes of the muses and each of them are holding different instruments so for example Cleo Muse of History you'll always find her with the scroll in her hand mm. showing Ah, uh, yes she's recording history and that's what she's known for mm. so if you go back you cannot easily identify actually all of the different muses by the objects that they come with and that's that's why I had to write about Artemisia Gentileschi mm. because she plays with this symbolism of the muse in, in a lot of her paintings, including Cleo muse of History. She does a, a painting on that title of the subject.
1: Since we, are, we mentioned uh, Artemisia so many times, for our listeners who might not be familiar uh, with her and her art, why uh, did you include her in, in, in your book? Why, why is she important? Um, uh, if you could, could tell her story.
0: There, there were lots of women artists who I was kind of weighing up whose story should I tell in this section on an artist taking themselves as their own muse. So many great examples. But for me, Artemisia Gentileschi does it the best. Mm. <laughs> and in the Renaissance, there was this saying that every great artist paints himself. Mm. And you can see the problem with that phrase. But at this point in history, small handheld mirrors have become available. So a lot of artists did begin to paint themselves at work in their studios showing oh you know i'm a great painter here this is where the mystery happens <laughs> look at me <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm artist and also my own muse and artemisia against lesky she's kind of taking on all these male painters showing themselves as great creators in the studio she's saying well yes i'm a woman and i can do this too but she does it in a very clever way because she's not simply kind of emulating what they're doing but she's kind of playing with tools and symbolism and allegory of the muse because she's well aware that the muse is seen as female and that an artist is seen as male. So she's kind of blending all this symbolism together. So a good example of this is she's done a she she made a painting of herself as the allegory of painting. So at this point there there was a kind of famous handbook which had lots of different Symbols. So there was lots of different allegories, like the allegory of music or the allegory of painting. And painting was always seen in the form of a woman with dark brown hair, long, flowing. She always wore a gold chain around her neck. So in her painting, Artemisia Gentileschi is showing herself as this allegory of painting because she can be, because she's a woman. But she's also showing herself, you know, in her own studio, really hard at work. And I I love the depiction of this allegory of painting because a lot of men have painted um, this same allegory as a kind of sexy woman lounging around on a bed, yeah. <laughs> like kind of holding a palette in one hand. But there's obviously they're not using it to make a painting; they're just there for decoration. Artemisia Gentileschi's version: she is leaning forward towards that canvas. You can almost see sweat on her brow, and she's showing this is hard work, being a painter is really difficult. And particularly for a young woman like herself, because at that point she couldn't um, attend any formal academies for training. And as is the case for many women artists, they only made it because, you know, someone in the family would teach them. So in her case, her father was a great painter and he taught her how to paint. And a, a really important point about her story, Uh, I mean she overcame these kind of really practical odds as a young woman not being able to access academies but then her father brought in one of his friends to teach her painting as well and this man raped her and so she also had to go through such trauma and I think after this has happened you see in her paintings this real shift where there's a lot of violence towards men and Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, she's cutting off the head of (laughs) John the Baptist and serving it up on a platter. Um, And she's taking all these biblical subjects where normally women are kind of passively watching on. um, But actually in her versions, they're very active heroines. And for me, I think you can see in these paintings this kind of reclaiming of her power and her agency. And, you know, I think that's also important that she was portraying herself and using herself as her own model for a lot of these paintings as well. Mm -hmm. So I think her story is one of absolute survival against the odds, really.
1: All the paintings that you mention here will be included on your page, so um, they can go and look at uh, uh, at the artworks that you mentioned. What I liked about uh, your description of Artemisia Gentileschi is the that it shows that, um, while other artists were very driven by their ego, her muse was more pure. It was like a true expression of the truth that she sees. There was no this showing off, not, um, taking, uh, uh the ability to be an artist for granted that many other male artists didn't, ha- uh, didn't have to struggle with. I found her story to be very inspiring. You also mentioned. Picasso's inspiration, Dora Maar, she falls into the category of her being an artist herself and inspiring Picasso. And you focus the chapter on a famous Guernica painting. I didn't know, I read, I cannot say that I read a lot about that painting. I'm not an art historian, but I knew about this painting, explored it, but I didn't know her role that she played um uh, in in that uh in making that um, epic kind of painting that up till today shocks uh, the viewers when uh, when when you see it uh, what was Dora Maar's contribution to famous guernica to our listeners who might not yeah. know about because i didn't know about it? and how is it possible to miss such a key person who plays such a role in the painting. Um, you know, how is it possible? I just like couldn't believe it.
0: I think in art history, we we all love this idea of genius and the one talented person. But most artworks are created in collaboration in some way, or they're based on having a great teacher or great influences, you know, practical help. I was just hearing recently about uh, Marcus Rashford, the footballer, and how... When he was little, his mum took him on the bus to football training. This took hours out of her day. She took him to football training every day. You know, without his mum, he would not be the footballer he is today. But we don't hear her story or hear her name. We just see, you know, this one kind of superstar on the field. But, you know, behind all of these great stars, there's they, they, they've needed other people. And the same is there for Picasso. And I think, you know, he he was great at kind of branding himself this solo genius. And he made lots of paintings of himself in his studio, kind of showing this is where the magic happens. And I think he was also responsible for kind of writing out the contributions of lots of women and particularly Dora Mark. And I knew that she'd had an influence on his style. But when I started digging around in her story, I couldn't believe actually how much impact she had on not just his style but also his subject matter so for your listeners the they met in Paris in 1935 in a small cafe um, it Lots of narratives always say that, you know, the the muse wants to be found and, you know, they were plucked out of obscurity by this great artist. In fact, with Dora Maar, she wanted to meet Picasso. At this point, she was a young artist, really talented. She was part of the surrealist movements. She was considered a rising star in their group. She was exhibiting with them. She was also a fashion photographer and had her own studio and was commercially really successful working on really big campaigns for big brands in the city Um, and, and she put herself kind of in in the way of Picasso and at this cafe they they met and then that's when they started this both personal and artistic relationship and you see after they've met that Dora Marsh she introduces Picasso to photography and she starts to teach him black and white photography in her studio and there's portraits they've made of each other at this point so picasso also becomes her and you can see the influence of black and white photography clearly on picasso's paintings because he leaves behind this you know beautiful bright palette which he used used in the years before and moves towards a monochrome imagery including in guernica which is in black and white and you can also see at the top of that mural a light bulb which is just like the one in Dora Maar's own photography studio. But with this painting, I think more important is the fact that Dora Maar introduced Picasso to her politics, and she, which was really rare at this time for a woman. She was heavily involved in ultra-left-wing groups. She was really anti-war in her stance, and she was getting involved in theatre performances. She was volunteering to look after the phone lines for the group And when it came to Picasso painting Guernica, which is an anti-war painting, she found him, the studio, big enough for him to paint it in, which was the former headquarters of one of these political groups she was a member of. Mm -hmm. And really, she, you know, she introduced him to her politics. She found him the space to paint the mural. She helped him paint sections of it, including one of the horses, And then also he asked her, please, can you photograph me making this? So he invited her to do that. So she was really instrumental in the subject, the style, the practical making of it. And yet, yeah, we all know it as Picasso's great mural and her contributions have been downplayed there.
1: It is just fascinates me how that part of the story could be uh so missed out um I've read in um simon shama's book uh uh I think called the Power of Art. He mentions a story that uh when um the United States was announcing the invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three they had to do it in one of the United Nations buildings and I think that uh a copy of Guernica is there and when Colin Powell I think he was US Secretary of State or something was about to announce the invasion the Guernica was behind him uh, and oh. they and they had to remove the painting from away because obviously it was such an ironic thing you know to have an yeah. anti-war po- uh, painting behind them. Colin Powell, when he's announcing that, you know, that Iraq has uh, nuclear weapons and stuff like that, we need to, yeah. and I found this story like a real power of art, you know, <laughs> um, that even across uh, decades, over a century, it still has such a power.
0: Um, yeah, well, that that's the thing about these great works of art, that they, the message still carries today. And I think, For me, one of the big problems with the muse is that we always see, particularly the women, through their romantic relationships. You know, oh, they were the lover of this artist and see them just through that lens of the really personal. But with Dora March, she was a really political person. And we need to see her as a whole figure, as an artist, as a political being, and as a romantic partner of Picasso. There's the mix there. And it was when I was looking at the portrait of her, the Weeping Woman, which I'm sure many of you listeners will know the portrait it's of the woman made the same year as Guernica of she's crying and she's crying and there's glass coming out of her tears. It's a really kind of hard image to look at. And this, this picture is held up as a reflection of their relationship and Picasso treating Dora Mar badly and she's always crying over him. But if you look closely in her eyes, in this portrait, there are war planes instead of her black pupils. So again, it's showing actually her grief here is about what's happening, you know, with the bombing of Guernica and war in Europe. Mm. I think there's, you know, there's often more, and there's, there's symbols and hidden messages in these pictures for us to find.
1: I hope you enjoy listening to my interview with Ruth Millington. Before we will continue, I would like to let you know that you can send your own questions to the future guests by sending me a direct message on Instagram or by replying to my newsletter. I would like to thank everyone who sent their questions for this interview. Those of you who are not yet subscribed to my newsletter or don't follow me on Instagram, I will leave a link to both of them in case if you would like to join Artidote's book community. Now, let's get back to my interview with Ruth Millington. Of course I cannot not ask you about Frida Kahlo here because her story is also incredible. I think like uh, the pain that she's gone through, you know, and how she found inspiration in pain. It's such a it's strange to say, but it's such an inspiring story, you know, of like overcoming. Could you please tell a little bit about muse and why muse um, is also unique?
0: Yeah. So the Frida Kahlo chapter... I was really looking forward to writing it. I mean, she had to go in because she's such an iconic artist who's Mm -hmm. taken herself as her own muse. But it took me the longest to research and to write because in a way there was so much material there, but also there's so many kind of fictional narratives around Frida Kahlo. Call it Frida Mania. We see her face everywhere Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she's held up as this icon of fashion. And, you know, she was obviously celebrating in these portraits of herself you know, or deconstructing notions of gender. She would, you know, paint that monobrow, which we all know is really famous now. And there's images of her cutting off her hair as well, with short hair and, you know, playing with Mexican dress and fashion. But the more I researched her, the more I realised, actually, there's another story here. And I think there's something even more important than this going on in her works of art. And it actually goes right back to the fact that she originally wanted to be a doctor and she was one of the first girls to be at medical school. And then it was just on her way back from the school that she was involved in this horrific crash uh, between a bus and a tram, which left her in bed for a year. And this is the point at which, what was she going to do? She couldn't go to medical school anymore. And she knew, right, my hopes of being a doctor are over now. And she used a mirror, which her parents bought for her, to start painting portraits of herself. And you can see in these early portraits, she's beginning to find some kind of relief in painting herself. You can see she's using art as a form of therapy. Before that's even a term that people are using, and it's not you know, a method the doctors used at the time. And she's also bringing in lots of medical imagery as well. and. Once you understand this, you can see it in all of her portraits. She's she's often puncturing her skin. So the famous portrait, the broken column, it shows this kind of neck and back brace, which she had to wear. And she had many operations on her back after this horrific accident. But there's also nails going into her skin in this portrait. And you can see it's like she's trying to release the pain. she's also trying to work out you know physically as well as emotionally what's what's happening to me here and how can i exercise these feelings so for me i saw oh she's kind of trying to act as her own doctor in these portraits and trying to understand what's happening trying to heal herself and there's a really great portrait lesser known but you can you can find it online and i'd say all the works of art that i discuss in the book you can easily find reproductions of them and it's Frida Kahlo with the doctor Farrell, who operated on her many times. And they're stood side by side. Well, he stood and she sat in a wheelchair and she's got on an easel with this portrait of him and then. She's sat in the wheelchair with her palace in one hand, but her palace is actually made up of her own heart and kind of veins and blood. So you can see she's playing with this medical imagery showing that, yes, he's the formal doctor, but she's also acting as this kind of artist doctor to, you know, represent herself. But also, I think more than that, she was trying to find some kind of comfort and relief there, both her physical and her emotional pain. And... Uh, I, I was reading that she underwent quite a few different psychological tests, and she definitely had some severe mental health problems beyond kind of what happened in the accident that again, at that point they just weren't being treated or they weren't understood. So again, in her paintings and also in her diaries, and you can find out there a reproduction of her diaries, she's really just kind of expressing herself and using art in this in this way. So, so many layers in her paintings. You can see why (laughs) it took me a long time to really focus on um, one narrative in this chapter, because there's so much happening in her works of art.
1: Do you think that she had multiple muses?
0: I think she was her own muse. I think Mexico was kind of her muse as well. Um, She definitely, she she liked to be the muse of others as well. And, you know, she would sit for photographers, allowing them to construct on the surface this identity of her as, you know, the fashion reader. But then below the surface, I think, you know, she was she felt kind of trapped. I think for her, it wasn't wanting to take herself as her own muse, but needing to. There's Mm. a necessity there.
1: Would you say that this chapter was the hardest for you to write or were there other challenging ones?
0: This was one of the hardest ones to write. Yes. And another chapter actually that didn't make it into the book was really difficult to write. Um, I wrote about an American painter, Michaelaine Thomas, and her relationship with her mother, who she was estranged from for many years. But through this project, a photography project in which her mum became a model for her, they began to talk again and heal their relationship. And it brought them really close together. And they ended up making a film about um, the artist's mum. And the they the the artist Michaeline Thomas was really happy with the text to go in the book, but she said, because her mum had just passed away, she didn't want an, another artist illustrating her mother. She wanted to kind of control that imagery. And so I had to respect her wishes there. And, you know, I spoke to the publisher. We could we could have included the text and an image in the book legally, but it, it felt morally wrong and the book's all about respecting the wishes of the muses and telling their story fairly. So that chapter, I, I yeah, it was uh, a really emotional one to write. I went on quite a journey. And I'd say with each of the muses, actually, I felt like I kind of lived in their world for that month while I was researching and writing about them. And then I always needed a little bit of a break before heading into the next one because it was like trying to understand from their point of view what what their role was. So yeah, I w- it was a shame that one didn't make it into the book because it was a tricky one to write. But I'm sure the material will be used <laughs> at another point.
1: <laughs> how long did it? How long did it take you to write this book?
0: Um, it's kind of a, a hard one to answer. I'd say about two years. Research for that was going on before I'd started writing the book, and that all went into the proposal. And for anybody interested in pitching to a publisher it took nine months from me sending in my initial submission to then getting an offer to write the book. And during that time, I went through various rounds of pitching and I had to write sample chapters and an introduction. I had to write the conclusion in that time. I had to write a synopsis for all of the other chapters. So I'd say even in that nine months, that was also writing the writing of the book. So it was a yeah, many, many years of research and writing went into
1: it. Sounds really interesting how, um, how that works. You know, how do you, um, uh, write the chapter proposals? And, um, was there any difference uh, between like writing about artists who are, um, who lived in the past, um, in contrast to writing and describing muses of the artists such as Beyonce? Um, what was it, <laughs> what was it like? Well, did you contact the artist to contact Beyonce to ask her experience of becoming a mother and how it influenced uh, her uh, her or what how did it work uh, with artists like that
0: so i actually my specialism is in modeling contemporary art and i i particularly enjoyed writing the chapters on these contemporary figures because also i felt like that you know that's up to date in this concept of the muse you can see it's still shifting and evolving so great to kind of get into that debate as well i mean beyonce uh no chance of her responding, but <laughs> with some of the other contemporary artists and muses, I with I'd say with most of them I did do interviews and I absolutely love that. So for example, one of Lucian Freud's most famous muses, Stu Tilly who she's supervisor sleeping. She's the woman sleeping on the sofa in his studio. She gave a great interview about her relationship with Freud and how she was actually working as a job center supervisor at the time and going from this day job quite a hectic day job to his studio in the evenings and she was so tired that she naturally just fell asleep on the, his wooden floorboards on the, in the studio and, and she said to him listen Lucien, I'm pretty tired and it's not very comfortable on your floor what can you do about it so he went out and bought her this secondhand really comfortable sofa and that's how we have these images of her now sleeping on the sofa and and she was also saying that she she's been to some of these collectors houses or yachts to see where these paintings are now and in one of them it was a very beautiful mansion in north london she went round and that they'd hung the portrait of her opposite the tv and she said i love that i'm just lounging around watching tv all day <laughs> so she i mean she was just a brilliant character to interview and she was really generous and open that i interviewed artists as well. So the fashion photographer Tim Walker. Mm-hmm. He told me all about going to Mexico with Tilda Swinson for two weeks where they did a photo shoot. And he 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 was really eloquent in speaking about how for him there's a difference between a model and you know anybody can be a model and come to a set and be told what to do. And a muse who brings something to the photo shoot mm-hmm. and will what he says meet him halfway. In that portrait and he says he, he refers to it as a handshake between the artist and the muse where they're both sharing something and coming together in this collaboration so it, i mean it was such a privilege to be able to interview him
1: how did he describe that middle way meeting in the halfway um how does he feel that uh, what differentiates for him a model and a muse how would he describe that uh, articulate what how does he feel that somebody is a muse not just a model
0: yeah well he gave a really specific example because i was looking at all these photographs of tilda swinton in mexico for a series called stranger than paradise and they shot this series in a what was a surrealist estate of edward james and edward james he funded many of the great surrealists including Dali. so it was it, actually this is a good story to go off tangent but Dali and Edward James they were in a hotel room together and they were sipping champagne and eating lobster and basically Edward James flung one of the lobster claws across the room and it landed on top of the telephone in the hotel room and voila there we have the artwork which then Dali turned into one of his most famous surrealist objects so Edward James was really at the heart of the surrealist movement and he created this incredible um, estate in the Mexican jungle which you can visit today and there's kind of staircases going into the sky and murals all over the place and Tilda Swinton she is interested in surrealist art so in terms of their collaboration between the collaboration between her and Tim Walker he said she's the one who came up with the concept and the idea to recreate some of these surrealist characters from the murals around the estate. And they worked closely together on kind of storyboarding and concepts and what kind of outfits was she going to wear. So the vision for the whole photo shoot also came from Tilda Swinton. And then he also talks about the fact that she's an actress and she brings that presence and that understanding of how to perform to the photo shoot. So he will say, you know, I want you to, you know, stand over here, you know, the light here is great. But then he said, you know, she would always bring something to it. She would bring, he says, particularly timing, she'd be great. She could step into that, into the space, into the role and just kind of instinctively knew how to perform for the camera. And he said they, you know, they had also just a fantastic time making the series together sounds like a really surreal two weeks
1: <laughs> it sounds so interesting it's just like sometimes you want we wish you could be the fly on the wall just to see how everything that
0: definitely <laughs> especially that yeah those two weeks in this jungle i don't know what they got up to but it sounded fantastic
1: <laughs> since you've written about and described the life so of so many muses if um if an artist uh would uh, would have asked you like what are your key takeaways of how how to find muse? How to meet muse? Um, how to start a relationship with your muse? What what kind of things you've noticed when you were writing this book? What kind of advice would you give to a, an artist of embracing the muse, like Frida Kahlo embraced her pain, and um or mm-hmm. uh, as Tilda Swinton wasn't just um you know, model, she was um, collaborating with the, with a the photographer. So uh, what would be your advice to an artist, like how to build a relationship with the muse?
0: The relationships throughout the book, they're also varied. There's no one model for it. But if there's something that is the constant, is that there was, there was a kind of integrity to each of the relationships and meaning. And it's something that I tell my students at Sotheby's Institute as well in terms of networking with people you can't just you can't just pick up a person and then expect them to help you out you need to share some visions some values and better to network with meaning and with fewer people but really to build a connection and for me i always meet the greatest people who become friends at events you know like a book launch or a gallery opening or something where I've gone because I'm interested in that and then the people I meet there are going to be like-minded so we're going to share some interest or maybe some political view that's the same from the start. So for me it's all about that connection, connection to another person and I don't think you can manufacture that and also these relationships can be instant or they can take time to develop and You know, I've met people sometimes 10 years ago who I end up working on a project with down the line. You never know when someone who, you know, you've had a chance meeting with or maybe sat on a panel with can become more. So I think just being open to that and also not wanting to rush everything. Mm -hmm. I feel like in our society now, everything has to be instantaneous and we have to be creating content for social media. But actually, some of these great works of art took many, many years to develop and to give, thing, to give things and people time and space to naturally evolve. I don't think it's something that can be forced.
1: How do you think that all this in, uh, ephemeral, instantaneous things, how do you think it affects modern artists? Do you think um, being able to connect to so many people is of benefit or of or of not? Do you think social media is a bad influence let's say on on an artist or the other way around
0: i think it's good and bad i mean in terms of my own writing i feel that pressure to be posting constantly and everybody's always asking me what are you doing next and what's your next project which you know we need space to create good things i don't and i i do see a lot of Art is creating works just for Instagram to fit in the square, which, you know, made to be seen online as opposed to in reality, uh, a painting, a sculpture as a 3D object. Mm. Um, I also see trends on social media towards being really consistent and just doing the same thing over and over again to kind of fit with a brand, mm. um, which, you know, it works in one respect, but then, you know, for getting a gallery to represent you, not maybe not necessarily. I think there's a lot of pressure on all of us. I feel it too, to be a content creator, to be a brand. Um, But then beyond that, you know, I need weeks and weeks of sitting in a library to do the the real research in the book to create that quality work and to, to create work that will stand up to the test of time. You know, there's one thing to have instant success on social media, but I think we should all be trying to create things that will last beyond us. Isn't that what great art is? It would stand up in a museum, or you find the book in a library in decades to come. So I think it's hard because social media makes you feel like you have to chase that instant gratification, that rush now. But there's also a long, a longer game there, which I think we should all be playing, and we should act, try and act with a bit more integrity and make sure that the social media is, you know, working for us. We're not working for it.
1: Mm. That it enhances our experience ra- rather than kind of replaces, you know. Um, um, mm-hmm. Do you think the artists that we described would have been, could have survived and could have created the masterpieces um, that they did if they were living in our instantaneous world?
0: Um I feel like Frida Kahlo would have absolutely thrived on Instagram. <laughs>
1: that's, what, that's what I thought actually, but I wanted you to say.
0: <laughs> I feel like some, yes, yeah, some would have absolutely hated it because also, you know, so many, so many artists and muses were private hmm. and wouldn't have wanted to share everything. And there's something personal going on there. I think it's the same for all of us, though. You know. You become adapted to the environment you're in. We've all become used to social media now. I think, yeah, you you exist in the culture you're you're born into. So, I don't know. It is interesting to think about it, but yeah, definitely, Frida Kahlo would have been loving it.
1: <laughs> she would be a star on Instagram. Um yeah. <laughs> Towards towards the end of uh, of my interviews, I always ask uh, my guests to recommend a couple of books that. Um, they think that our listeners and our readers would, uh, would like is, are there any, usually it's three, (laughs) but you can choose as many as you want. My previous guest chose like six or seven books. So um, are there any books on art or something that inspired you that you would like to share?
0: There's a really great curator, an art historian called Denise Morel, and she has curated exhibitions on black models and written about them being erased from art history, because we always think, if we look at the pre-Raphaelites, we always think about Elizabeth Siddle and young white women with auburn hair as being the face of the pre-Raphaelite movement. But actually, Fanny Eaton, Jamaican-born model, was just as important to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. So she's written a book on black models in art history. I can't remember the exact title. It's a really beautiful book. It's colour plates throughout. It's a big coffee table book. But if you look up Denise Morell, black models in art history, it will come up. And I, yeah, I love that book so much. Um, Then there's a really good book, the Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood, based on an exhibition at the National Gallery, which writes about the Pre-Raphaelite women not just as muses and models, but also as makers, as artists. So the wife of William Morris, Jane Morris, she was an embroiderer. We see her in lots of portraits, but also she was making art as well. So that's a fantastic book.
1: Is that by the same author or it's it's different author from the
0: different author. There's a few authors involved in that one because it's an exhibition catalogue. Oh, okay. um, cool. Yeah. National Gallery Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood. And then I mean to quote an absolute staple in my library, Linda Nochlin, why have there been no great women artists? Classic. (laughs) Talking about, you know, all the issues that women artists have faced, including Artemisia against Tileski. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's your three. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's great. I'll um to our for our listeners everything that we've mentioned during this episode will be uh on uh, Ruth Millington's page on uh my podcast. You can find it in the description. Um I would where can our listeners find you? Uh, is it uh Instagram, is it Twitter, website, uh, where where should they go? <laughs>
0: well, Twitter's still standing just.
1: <laughs> um
0: Uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, Uh, I've got a blog, I mean, just search for Ruth Millington on Twitter and Instagram, and my blog is ruthmillington.com. Um, or you can find me hopping around galleries in London <laughs> to, go to, to go to private views and having a glass of wine and meeting lots of lovely people.
1: That's great. Um, is there anything that I you wanted me to ask, but I didn't? And like you think that this bloody interviewer didn't ask that question that I was expecting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, normally, I, normally I'm asked at the end by someone in the audience, can an animal be a muse? <laughs> so what I would say is, yes absolutely (laughs) let me just answer this now and you know artists have had really strange pets throughout history uh david hockney with his sausage dogs so if you want to look up a funny picture look up david hockney sausage dogs there's some really cute pictures of his dogs at home in their basket
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for coming to my podcast i could have talked with you for another um two or three hours but thank you so much Um, i wish you all the best with the future projects i hope social media won't uh, rush you a lot you know the deadlines and will allow you to um you know take your time and do your research as much as you want thank you once again um uh, for coming to my podcast
0: oh thanks for having me and Stephen's greetings have a nice holiday
1: thank you thanks a lot (laughs) I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with Ruth Millington. You can find the link to her book in the description of this episode. I think it is one of those books that you need to have and hold in your hands. I think the ebook version doesn't give you the full appreciation of wonderful illustrations and wonderful design and generally the whole experience of the book. So I would really recommend you to get the hard copy of this book. I would also like to mention that Ruth has a great website where she posts her pieces on art history you can also follow her on twitter and instagram everything will be included in the description of this episode one last thing that i would like to ask you it's actually a very small favor the fact that you listened this part of the episode means that you've actually enjoyed this podcast and if you did I would really appreciate if you could leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, whichever platform you use. It will help my work immensely, and it will help more people to discover Artidot Podcast. Once again, thank you all for sending your questions, and I'll see you in the next episode. This was Vashikar Armenikos and Artidote Podcast.